Nuclear Corruption The nuclear industry's lies are so common, we take it for granted that whenever they move their lips, they're lying. It's a constant bombardment of the public with focus-grouped talking points and denial that relentlessly manipulate the image of all things nuclear in their favor. And all of this is backed by a mega-funded, multi-million-dollar international propaganda campaign. One ultimately learns that in the thesaurus, nuclear and corruption deserve to be synonyms. So when the Museum of Political Corruption, yes, there is such a thing, puts together a program that features nuclear corruption, as represented by an important documentary on what it took to close Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant, and then puts together a panel discussion to dig deeper into the topics raised. And one of the esteemed participants tells you, Don't assume that just because someone has a PhD and a tie and an official status in a government position, that they are an authority versus the people you're looking at here on this screen, you know, and the people especially that you see in Robbie's film. They're the people who are living it. They're the people on the ground. Those are the people that our political leaders could be listening to. So you're right, Libby, we have to do our own media. We have to educate the electorate because in the end, they're the ones that are going to decide who goes to Washington or not. And the people who go to Washington are going to answer to what their constituents want in order to stay elected. Well, when Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear provides you with that pointed set of observations about nuclear corruption and joins with others as part of an international panel discussion that digs deep into the topics raised, you get a sense of how important it is to expose and hold to account those whose actions have put us into that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we present excerpts from an exciting roundtable discussion that was held on Friday, December 9, 2022. It was produced by the Museum of Political Corruption as part of their Disrupt film series and featured a screening of the film Power Struggle by Robbie Lepser. The film tells the story of citizen activism that forced Energy Corporation to shut down the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Station, located in Vermont, USA. It is a powerful, understated portrait of regular citizens standing up to speak truth to power and not shutting up. It's a model for us all to follow. After the film, a lively, no-holds-barred discussion got to the point of nuclear corruption with some ideas of what we can do to combat it. 
We'll also have the latest in nuclear news and more honest nuclear information than was texted from the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 13, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Before we get to our feature, the big news, if you were online, watching TV, listening to the radio or streaming platforms, or in anything except a comatose state, you've been hearing about nuclear fusion. This miracle drug of a technology was everywhere, framed as an earth-shattering breakthrough in energy production. The answer to everything from climate change to Putin's hold on energy reserves and nothing short of the second coming of Christ. But all that hype leads us inexorably to Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. You want an example of nuclear corruption? Take a look at today's big, big, big story. It is everywhere. From news, to government, to editorials, to Dan Rather, to Stephen Colbert. Nuclear fusion, that's what they're talking about. The power source, 70 plus years in the making, which is promised to give us all cheap, limitless energy with no radioactive waste. It may take about 70 years or so to implement this, if they're even right about it. But hey, the hype is here and now, so let's go with it. You know, they might as well say energy too cheap to meter, which is the lie that was used in the 1950s to sell us on nuclear fission reactors. The big selling point here is less is more. We use less energy to make more energy. Poof! Like magic. A perpetual motion machine of energy creation. Or a really good run at the slots at Vegas. By bombarding 2.05 megajoules of energy with 192 lasers, it turns into 3.15 megajoules of energy. Huzzah! But let's dig a little deeper into those numbers. Rounding them off just for the sake of conversation, two units of energy turns into three. But what does it take to achieve that three? Ah! The focus power of 192 lasers. Great! But how much energy does it take to power those 192 lasers? Turns out, 322 megajoules of energy. So let me see here. It takes 322 megajoules to turn 2 megajoules into 3 megajoules. That makes an overage of 318 megajoules of energy that have been used to make this one puny little so-called breakthrough to three. And raises the question, where, oh, where does the laser's energy come from? Might it be the grid? You know, it took a really deep dive to find the numbers of what it takes to fuel the laser's And nobody is talking about where that energy to fuel the lasers comes from. But I think this is one of those instances where the presence of something can be proven by its absence. When discourse is cut off before you get to a point of absolute clarity, 
there's a cover-up happening. And this looks to me like a numbers game with the nuclear industry cooking the books. Look, we turned two into three. Or maybe you took 322 and turned it into 318 plus change. Now, admittedly, I am not a physicist. So there may be an explanation that makes perfect sense as to how 322 was used to turn 2 into 3, and that is a net gain of energy. If I'm wrong, I will admit it and give you whatever the facts seem to be at that point. But so far, I have not been able to discover a way that 1 plus 1 adds up to anything but 2. This story is new, fresh, I need to do more research on it, and we are being bombarded with the talking points put out in favor of the nuclear industry. What's the truth, and where is it hiding? Let's see if we can figure this out. But my conclusion as of right now, we the people are being scammed. We're being gamed internationally. Another example of nuclear corruption at its most vicious and pernicious and well-funded and pervasive. And that's why all of you who are behind this tsunami of propaganda on nuclear fusion as the greatest thing since sliced bread, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none nuts of the week. Now here's this week's special feature. Sometimes I'm asked to participate in an event, and the results are so compelling, I have to share them with you. That's the feeling I was left with after both moderating and participating in a roundtable discussion held on Friday, December 9, 2022, on the Museum of Political Corruption's Disrupt film series. Specifically, their screening of the film Power Struggle by Robbie Lepser. The film tells the story of the citizen activism that forced Energy Corporation to shut down the Vermont Yankee nuclear power station in Vermont, USA. To fill in how Entergy's corruption and lies figured into the battle, the museum provided a free screening of the film and the roundtable discussion. Participants included Robbie Lepser, director of Power's Struggle, and an accomplished director whose critically acclaimed feature-length and short documentaries about contemporary social issues, grassroots activism, and multicultural themes have been broadcast by CNN International, NHK, Canadian Broadcasting, HBO Cinemax, CNN, and more. Tony Klein was a Vermont State Representative for 14 years, from 2002 to 2016. He served on the House Committee of Natural Resources and Energy for 12 years, and that's the committee responsible for oversight of the majority of issues pertaining to the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant. And Linda Pence-Gunter is the international specialist at Beyond Nuclear. She writes for and curates Beyond Nuclear International and was a journalist for 20 years, principally with Reuters and other print and broadcast media. She now contributes regularly to Nuclear Hot Seat with the hot story. What follows are highlights from the panel discussion, which ran a full 90 minutes and was recorded on Friday, December 9, 2022. We started with the director, Robbie Lepser. What first led you to make this film? Well, when I first heard that the Vermont legislature was in the very unique position of, of really being the only legislature in the country 
that had the authority to make a decision about the future operation of a nuclear power plant, I became really interested as a documentary filmmaker to make a film about this because showing the process of how a decision like this gets made and how do citizens have input into a decision like this that affects their very lives. I was living at the time 18 miles away from the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant, just over the border in Massachusetts in a small town near the Connecticut River. And if there was ever a major release of radioactivity um, at Vermont Yankee, my community and the communities all around me would be affected. So I wanted to find out what was going on in terms of the dangers at this aging problem-plagued nuclear power plant and how citizens could uh, have an impact on, on those decisions. So I started filming at a time when it was very unclear what was going to happen in terms of how would the Vermont legislature vote on this future relicensing of this nuclear power plant? How would the federal government um, react? How would the corporation, the Energy Corporation, which is a huge corporation uh, running Vermont Yankee, how would they react as well? And, and, and most importantly, how would the citizens, the, the grassroots citizens of Vermont, how would they express their voice and would their voices be heard and could they make change? Could they affect the outcome? And so I had no idea when I started what the outcome would be. It was five years of filming, lots of twists and turns uh, to the story. And to me, this is really a story about democracy in action. What are some of the factors that you believe led the activists in Vermont to be as impactful and successful as they ultimately were when so many other places around the country have had less success rallying the forces and getting people to move forward and being effective in making the change? Well, first of all, there's been grassroots anti-nuclear groups in Vermont fighting Vermont Yankee since even before it was built. So this is a multiple decades long campaign of organizing. And I only got involved in filming the last few years of it, but it, it had been going on for decades. And I think one of the things that the grassroots activists found out through their experience, firsthand experience, was that you could not get, practically, you could not get anywhere on a federal level. You couldn't get to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the federal agency in charge with the protection of the public and the environment, because they have been talking about the theme of today's forum, political corruption. They have been bought out um, by the nuclear industry. And I'm sure that Linda and Tony can talk more about that. And so the activists realized that the only chance that they had was on a state level to work through the state of Vermont. And Vermont was in a very unique position being the only state that required a state license, a state operating license for a nuclear power plant in addition to a federal license. So this gave the Vermont legislature in the state of Vermont a unique opportunity, and I think Tony can explain more about this, to have a say-so when the original 40-year license of Vermont Yankee was up for renewal. 
Usually these are just rubber stamped by the uh, Federal um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission and citizens have virtually no say, or at least their, their, their say is not taken into account. But in this case, the citizens of Vermont through their elected officials had a say so. Let's switch this over to you, Tony. You were Vermont's chair of energy and natural resources committee that oversaw issues pertaining to the relicensing of the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant. Describe for us some of the things that you learned about the lies and corruption, corruption of power that the Energy Corporation committed and also the complicity of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. What I first wanna do is to be very clear to separate the ownership and the management and the NRC from truly the wonderful people, the employees of that plant, who I met with many times and told them it was not about them and that how much I appreciated them because I could only sleep at night because I knew their dedication and I knew their expertise. But what they were dealing with there was old technology, uh, old parts, and a ownership that was literally the gang that couldn't shoot straight. What are some of the specifics that you discovered that spoke to the corruption? As Robbie sh showed in the in the movie, the the blatant lying by the top level executives about uh, leaking pipes and, ra and radioactive material uh, leaking. I mean, that was a, a blatant, bolden lie. There's not much more you can say about that. They, they, they couldn't even make any excuses for it. it. It's just, you know, we're a citizen legislature here in, in Vermont. We're all ordinary people. I'm not a career politician, okay? But when I discovered that I could go mano a mano with these people, nose to nose, toe to toe, that they were, they were ridiculous. They, 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 they were so inept in what they were doing. They had never ever experienced a state like Vermont. They were used to the, uh, most of their plants are in the South. Nobody, nobody gives a hoot about what, what they're doing. Uh, it, it's all about the money. But as you know, in Vermont, it's a lot different than that. We care about where we live. In the battle to shut down Vermont Yankee, what were some lessons or what were some actions that were taken by the citizens that perhaps would translate to be useful in other locations, in other states? Well, it's truly a grassroots movement. And although the legislature had the the legal right and the power, and uh, you know, we dressed up in suits every day and went went to the state house, and uh, you know, news coverage covered us. We were uh, very proficient. It really, we we are always empowered by the population, by the people of Vermont. It's truly a, a, a state that is grounded in local control. We have town government and we have state government. We, we don't have county government. So um, one of the things I like to say about our state house, and I implore every, everybody, if you've not visited the Vermont state house, it's an incredible institution. 
It's been open as a state house, never closed since the day it opened in 1856. And the, the desk that I sat on on the floor of the House of Representatives was put there in 1856. Um, the doors are open. The original door of the state house is still there. The key that locks the door is from 1856. And when people come to visit the state house and, and come to petition their legislature, they walk through doors and when they, and when they come into the building, one of the questions I ask them is, did you notice anything? And they go, no, what do you mean? And I said, you didn't go through any metal detectors. There's no security. This is the people's house. So there's really, really no difference between uh, the public that's out in the street and the public which becomes the state legislature. So we are empowered uh, by our neighbors. We are empowered by what they do. Uh, it doesn't fall on, on, on deaf ears. When, when you've got hundreds of people who are marching across the state and up and down the state to shut Vermont Yankee down, 150 state representatives, 30 senators, the governor and the lieutenant governor, and everybody else who's an elected official pays attention. That's a unique situation when it comes to state governments and their relationship to the nuclear industry uh, and nuclear power plants around the country. Linda, you're someone who has been working within the anti-nuclear movement for a very long time. How important do you think protests like the one portrayed in Power Struggle are? They're absolutely essential. I, I think the first thing that leaps to mind is the famous you know, Margaret Mead quote about never doubt that a small group of thoughtful committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I mean, that, and you saw in that trailer, Frances Crow, who was already in her 90s then, who was at some point was asked, well, how many times have you been arrested? And she said, not enough. And, um, you know, that's absolutely the center of that film is the power of protest, whether it's about this particular issue or another. You know, the other thing that sprang to mind was actually um, a quote from Howard Zinn, the, the famous social historian, who, uh, and this was actually in a different film, also about a protest, it's called Lovejoy's Nuclear War, and it was about Sam Lovejoy's one-man protest against the threatened nuclear power plant in Montague, Massachusetts. Howard Zinn testified at his trial, and afterwards, you know, he said, and I, I read this, far more violence to human life has been done in human history by people obeying the law than by people breaking the law. And so sometimes, you know, what he was saying is that sometimes you have to break the law to protect life, liberty and health. And that's the commitment that was made uh, in Vermont by those protesters. And I, and I have to say that, you know, I remember the one and probably only time that in Vermont that we protested Bernie Sanders, who was then a House representative for Vermont, who supported the transfer of low-level nuclear waste in a compact from Vermont to Sierra Blanca, poor, largely Hispanic community in Texas. And we protested that and with bread and puppets, and people got arrested. And, uh, you know, it was probably the first and last time that we protested anything that Bernie Sanders did. But you know, we had to, you can't assume that anybody is going to be on target all the time. 
you have to hold all your petition all your politicians accountable i think no matter who they are on the subject of political corruption we saw some major scandals break in 2020 around bribery corruption and racketeering in three states with nuclear projects nuclear power projects at the center of them can you briefly describe to us what they were and what happened you know, I was thinking at the opening when Bruce was doing his Hall of Shame that we could add a few more <laughs> candidates to that list right away, um, most particularly from these three states. So in Ohio and in Illinois, it was a case of political corruption fueled by the nuclear power industry. Uh, both of them involved speakers of the House. In the case of Ohio, a Republican. In the case of Illinois, a Democrat. And what went down in Ohio was really breathtaking. I'll try to make this concise, but it was it was sort of like a you know, movie in a way. Um, so the Speaker of the House, Larry Householder, was in receipt of $61 million of dark money, he and four other co-conspirators, which was funneled to him by something called Company A, which was almost certainly First Energy, in order to get a subsidy bill, a $1.5 billion bill through the House to bail out Davis, Bessie and Perry nuclear power plants in Ohio. This $61 million uh, was used, it was described as the biggest criminal racketeering conspiracy in Ohio history. It was investigated by the FBI and the US attorney who described it as likely the largest bribery money laundering scheme ever perpetrated against the people of the state of Ohio. And this money was used, A, to make sure that Householder retained the speakership of the House, B, to fund campaigns, to make sure that the House was loaded up with people who would then vote for this huge subsidy for First Energy. And then it was also used to try and interfere with efforts to rescind this bill including beating up people on the streets and running very curious campaigns, ads suggesting that the Chinese were coming to take over your brains and, you know, all sorts of things. <laughs> and of course, you know, this all went down in, a, in, a, in flames and householders due to go to trial actually in January, although since then he's now been actually caught in a, some sort of pay-for-play sports betting scandal as well, so evidently undeterred went on to new levels of corruption. And in Illinois, it was Mike Madigan, a very long time, very well-respected Democrat leader, you know, Speaker of the House, who um, took money from ComEd, the utility there, in exchange for favorable legislation. And this money was given to friends of his, it was actually jobs, you know, they were given jobs that they never really had to do anything at all for, um, but they got all these uh, nice fat salaries from ComEd. Um, so he's been indicted by a federal grand jury. Uh, again, uh, on a huge level of racketeering, bribery, charges, soliciting and receiving personal gain. But that charge has now been superseded by something they discovered he did earlier, uh, a similar uh, racket with AT&T, with the then uh, head of the Illinois AT&T. So those were the two political scandals. And then real quick, the the, uh, the sort of corporate scandal was in South Carolina. So in this country, there was supposed to be a big nuclear renaissance. In the end, only four reactors broke ground. Two of them were in South Carolina. They got canceled midstream. And the head of the utility, the, the heads of the utility, Scarner and Westinghouse, which was the manufacturer of the, re of the reactors, have all been also held accountable. Uh, one of them is facing 16 felony counts. So again, bribery, corruption, misleading shareholders, fleecing the public and so forth. 
Um, and again, one of them has actually already gone to jail. Another one has a trial pending. So it just, you know, I, I feel like nuclear power is just not compatible with democracy. And I think lastly, we have a huge problem in this country about money and politics. You know, the amount of money that is spent to A, elect people and then keep them elected and then re-elect them uh, just sets up this possibility of corruptibility. And unfortunately, we have a very lot of weak people who gain public office who are more than happy to take these kickbacks. And, and line their own pockets and their friends' pockets. And that's exactly what we saw go down in Ohio and Illinois. Thank you for that. And let's throw this open to all of you to just jump in. What is it about the nuclear industry that makes it so hard to fight against? Well, I, I could go on, but I, I feel like <laughs> I'm talking for the last 10 minutes. But I'm, I think, you know, it's there's an, a huge amount of... Um, political power and, and financial power, uh, especially at the federal level on Capitol Hill. And um, it's sort of an entrenched status quo, you know, in, in, in many ways, like the tobacco industry was in the way that the fossil fuel industry is. I mean, you could ask the same question, like, why haven't we done something about climate change? By now, we should have, right? Um, but the stranglehold that these companies have on our political system, I think is really, really pronounced. And then the other thing I think in the case of nuclear power is that it's in, inextricably linked to the weapons sector. And it's the weapons, the nuclear weapons sector is completely dependent on a continued flow of personnel, expertise, and know-how from the civil sector and also money. And so it's essential, and that's, actually, that's sort of in writing, that it's essential that the civil nuclear power industry not collapse because that would impact the nuclear weapons industry in a significant way. So there's a huge amount of impetus there to do everything possible to keep the nuclear power industry alive, even while its finances are awful. It's clearly the least economical way to turn our lights on. It has no ratio, no function for climate change, which is too slow, too expensive. You could get far greater carbon reductions for the same amount of money faster by closing nuclear power plants and putting all that money into renewable energy and energy efficiency. So that leaves you really with only one explanation, which is that it's part of the military industrial complex and it must be preserved at all costs. So that would be you know, one of the reasons I would say. Mm. It's also the fact that uh, without the federal government, there is no nuclear power industry. The federal government guarantees Wall Street 100% of their investment for every plant that's built. The federal government, through the Price-Anderson Act, ensures the plants up to, I can't remember, it was 100 or 200 million of the, of, of the first incident. And the federal government is responsible for their garbage. So there, there is no separation from it. So that in and itself explains uh, why there's no differences. There's another connection also. You've got, and, and I don't disparage any of them, they're wonderful people, they're wonderful employees, but most of the folks who operate nuclear plants came from the military. So they were trained by the federal government. In Vermont Yankees case, you had 600 employees working in the town of Vernon. 
the town of Vernon's taxes because of that plant was practically negligible. So the, the connections and, and the power that is there, there's no divide between uh, nuclear power plants and the federal government. Another thing that I would add is that um, the nuclear industry is absolutely brutal to whistleblowers and to people who speak out about the safety violations that go on on a regular basis in the nuclear industry. And in my film, Power Struggle, I profile one of those whistleblowers, Arnie Gunderson, who was just doing his job. He was in the nuclear industry for 20 years uh, as a nuclear engineer. He oversaw scores of projects around the country. And when he was working for a nuclear um, services company in Connecticut, just doing his job and he was reporting a safety violation, he was immediately fired by his company president who then blacklisted him from the nuclear industry and then turned around and sued him for speaking out uh, about the safety violations and the treatment of whistleblowers uh, when he testified at the Connecticut state legislature. And so this is done as a message to other nuclear workers to not blow the whistle. And so as a result, there's literally a handful, literally one hand of former nuclear engineers and insiders from the nuclear industry who are willing and brave enough to speak out uh, because of their brutal treatment. And I just have to you know, say once again um, that I, I honor Arnie and his wife, Maggie Gunderson, for their tremendous courage and um, speaking out, speaking truth to power, given all that they had to endure for that. And then fast forward 20 years later, they're living in Vermont and the Vermont State Legislature taps Arnie to be the chair of the committee that's looking into the um, relicensing of Vermont Yankee. And it was under Arnie Gunderson's watch. In fact, he uncovered the lies that the Energy Corporation uh, was caught in when there was a massive leak of radioactive tritium into the groundwater below uh, Vermont Yankee. And they lied about the, the underground pipes that existed. And Tony, I, I know that you were you know, in those hearings and that was when I first met you and I first met um, Arnie and Maggie Gunderson. For people who haven't seen the film, can you just give a little flavor of what that was like? Because it was an incredible moment where the, the corruption of the nuclear industry was being revealed by your citizen legislature. It was one of those rare moments where you were literally uh, sitting in the committee with everybody there from, from you know, the corporate executives and uh, just everybody who's involved in this and watching the, the gasp from, from, uh, from everybody, from uh, members of my committee in the audience when these bold-faced lies uh, were exposed and they admitted to it. And, and, and there, was, there was no denying it. There was no excuse except a few mea copas, that, that, that was it. And um, I, I would say that that, was, that event was probably 
uh, the nail in the coffin, the beginning of the end of, of Vermont Yankee in Vermont. And can you talk about what was revealed when Entergy had their own internal investigation into what went wrong and, and that secret memo that got released during the trial? And, and people have to remember, Entergy, this giant mega corporation, sued the state of Vermont to try to um, um, stop them from having authority over the future relicensing of, of Vermont Yankee. And so the whole question of democracy was being under... Um, you know, was being sabotaged uh, by this giant corporation using the court system. I'd like to add as to one of the factors as to why we have such a hard time fighting against nuclear is their overwhelming propaganda that they have world nuclear news. They have their own press people. There is this constant barrage of talking points and stories that are readily usable by the media that can just be picked up and dropped in without any questioning of the material that's in it. So their talking points, which they go through focus groups, they do testing, they see if it works in one part of the country, they'll use it in another part of the country. They are constantly moving forward on this. They're controlling the media discourse because they have such a flow of information. What we have are the occasional dedicated filmmakers like Robbie, and there are other films that have been out in the recent past. We've got Nuclear Hot Seat. We've got our newsletters that go out. Certainly Beyond Nuclear is a great source of that. And there are others as well. But we don't have the media reach and the media push, or at least we haven't figured out a way to coordinate the few voices we do have into something larger. And because we don't have a strong, regular, anti-nuclear drumbeat, going out into the media, people are not necessarily hearing it. We will continue with this week's feature and many more questions to the panel of experts in just a moment. But first, Merry Hanukkah, Christa, Kwanzaa, Solstice, Ramamas. It's the holiday time of year. Hanukkah, Christa. Okay, you've got the idea. It's the holiday gift-giving season. And time to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat runs on donations your donations. And not just for the holidays, but to celebrate some real milestones in Nuclear Hot Seat's history. Next week is going to be a real celebration. It will be episode number 600. That's one a week since June 14 of 2011. We'll have more information on recognition of my Nuclear Free Futures Award for Education. And here's a huzzah that impacts you, too. Nuclear Hot Seat is now officially a 501c3 not-for-profit corporation. That means that just in time for this holiday gift-giving season, your donations to Nuclear Hot Seat are tax-deductible. And what do you get for your donations? A weekly program that looks through the lies and trickery of the nuclear industry to report ongoing, evolving nuclear truths that the industry would rather you not know about. News, interviews, numbnuts, the hot story, all of it goes towards giving you a picture of what's going on in the nuclear industry, as well as what activists around the world are doing to fight back, push back, and shut them down. We can't do it without your support. That means a donation or a recurring donation of any amount. And now it's tax deductible. 
So help us keep going with a donation of any size. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button. From there, it's easy. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. So here's part two of the roundtable discussion on power struggle and nuclear corruption, as well as our audience Q&A. A final point that I want to get to before we open this up to, you know, questions from the viewers, and that is how do we get nuclear power on the radar of normal people, regular people who are out there and have them help them to understand how crucial this issue is, not just now, but for more than the foreseeable future, for the unforeseeable future. How do we get people involved, concerned, especially young people, on this issue? It's a big challenge, I think, Libby, and it's partly, you know, what you're doing, which is you make your own media, because as you've rightly pointed out, the establishment media tends to just buy the party line of the nuclear power industry and parrot it. And that's what we hear, you know, perfectly prominent, sensible democratic senators like Cory Booker and Sheldon Whitehouse, who are pro-nuclear evangelists, you know, and are just sort of trotting out what they heard. We have to do everything for climate change. It's here now. But it's good. You know, it's low carbon or zero carbon. And, and we don't get to sit down and have a glass of wine with them. And, you know, we don't have access. And I think the media is the same way. You know, I thought that during the Iraq war, uh, when CNN at the end of that did a huge mea culpa for just listening to the official line and reporting the news, you know, this is what's happening, instead of really finding out what was going on, uh, that they would become, incur- they become curious again, you know, inquisitive. I mean, the Vietnam War should have learned that lesson with the five o'clock follies too. You know, don't assume that just because someone has a PhD and a tie and an official status in a government position, that they are an authority versus the people you're looking at here on this screen, you know, and the people especially that you see in Robbie's film. They're the people who are living it. They're the people on the ground. Those are the people that our political leaders could be listening to. So you're right, Libby, we have to do our own media. We have to educate the electorate because in the end, they're the ones that are going to decide who goes to Washington or not. And the people who go to Washington are going to answer to what their constituents want in order to stay elected. <laughs> Am I cynical? A little bit. But, you know, that's the that's the deal, right? And so mm-hmm. if we can bring the grassroots into a position where they hear from us more often, and I'm always telling people this, write letters to the editor, do your own op-eds, get on radio shows, call in. You know, we sit around moaning far too much. You know, We need to do more, all of us, uh, in terms of getting the word out, making films, doing podcasts, you know, doing shows like this, um, doing newsletters and, and getting into as many media outlets as you possibly can. Well, I would say that we the- have to reach young people um, because, you know, in my experience, it's nuclear power is just not on the um, radar screens of most young people and even climate justice activists. And so a film like Power Struggle, you know, if we can get it into classrooms uh, for the teachers in the audience or the librarians, the film is available through New Day Films. I'm getting notices that there are a lot of really good questions that have come in from viewers. And I'd like to turn it over to getting some of those questions in. So, Veronica, if you can make them available. 
Okay. The private energy sector functions very much like pharmaceutical companies, with regulators often being hired by the industries they are supposed to have oversight on. How can local governments prevent this revolving door situation? Well, I don't think you can prevent it, uh, but you can recognize it. The oversight of this industry is the NRC. And in my dealings with the NRC, I was astounded by their their behavior. They would not answer any questions at all. I thought they were fools and I told them so. They were nothing but industry hacks and I told them so. And um, I don't know how they could have uh, lived with themselves. I did know one person and I think he, he left it because he couldn't, he couldn't stand that, that kind of environment. But when you're up against that and, and you're working with that, it's very, very hard uh, to defeat. The good news is, is that they will defeat themselves because these plants cannot run forever. And unfortunately, there will be mishaps. There's probably already been mishaps that have never been reported. The other part that has always confounded me is the waste situation. There is no answer to the waste, none. This industry took me and some members of my committee out to Yucca Mountain when that was being developed. What a joke. It was a $13 billion joke at that point. And that was 15 or 17 years ago. It was literally a hole in the ground that these folks lied to the citizens of Nevada that it was airtight and safe and no leakage. And of course, Harry Reid found that Senator Harry Reid found out that uh, uh, there absolutely was water leakage there, and that was the end of that. But that's the problem. And I think I, I think Linda, you made the connection uh, with the military, um, and I think that that's that's absolutely correct. For example, if you had the military operating a plant, I would feel much better about it. It would operate way, way more efficiently and better, but it would be so cost prohibited that it's just not worth it. Would someone, oh, from Paul Gunter, would someone like to talk about the need for public health studies around operating and closed nuclear power stations to learn more about the health consequences of nuclear power? I suppose I, I think I know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably know this conversation too. Yeah, the full disclosure, he's downstairs, he's my husband. Um, and we both work at Beyond Nuclear. Uh, and Paul is actually the expert on the on the reactor side of this. So um, it's a pity we can't turn on his mic. But actually what he's referring to, there was uh, a move to have, so the National Academy of Sciences did set up some protocols uh, through, unbelievably, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and I can tell you, Tony, that you can you know, start to wince right away when you hear that and suspect what might have happened because uh, several years went by, a lot of money was spent on setting up pro study protocols to look at, I think it was seven uh, sample sites, you know, six nuclear power plant sites and Irwin, Tennessee, which manufactures fuels for nuclear reactors, uh, to see what the cancer rates might be. And after the protocols were set up, the NRC canceled the study and they said, oh, it's too expensive. 
Meanwhile, I wish I had the numbers to hand. I didn't get coached for this question, unfortunately, otherwise I would have. But meanwhile, they had just built a third building in Rockville at their headquarters for some astronomically higher sum of multi-million dollars than the study itself would have cost. And this building was sort of a white elephant, mostly empty. They hadn't filled it because they thought they were going to have this nuclear renaissance and they would need this third building full of people you know, more lapdog regulators to rubber stamp things. And uh, then, of course, the Renaissance didn't happen. And so the building was vacant. But the cancer study was too expensive. And of course, we suspected that that was a complete cover story. And in fact, the protocols meant that what they would have found had they done the cancer studies would have been not too a lapdog regulator's liking because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission unfortunately does the bidding of the nuclear power industry. And somebody uh, asked about revolving doors earlier. And, and when you look at where NRC commissioners go to after they retire from the commission, they get nice plum jobs, guess where? In the nuclear industry. That's where they come from and that's where they go to. Not all of them, some of them come from the political sphere. We have two now like that. But it's just this revolving door. There's no credibility there. There's no integrity there. So what do you do? You know, you, you hold their feet to the fire. That's what Paul does every day of his life, you know, is to try to hold the NRC accountable. And so we are actually in the midst of trying to fight back and say, look, you know, there must be, like, it's incredible there's no cancer study in this country around nuclear power facilities. Incredible. You know, a country with 93 operating reactors still. Uh, the most of any country in the world. And so we are pushing to try and get that reinstated, but not under the auspices of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. About two weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat, I interviewed Joseph Mangano, who is an epidemiologist, and his group is Radiation and Public Health. And he is currently doing epidemiological studies into what are the cancer rates uh, in the counties around various nuclear sites, nuclear contaminated sites that we know about. And he will be having a series of reports coming out in 2023, but we have to rely on our own people to crunch numbers that already exist within the health system to try and find out and tease out the information. But you're right, Linda, there has been no consolidated study by the government because I don't think they will like what they find out because we're hearing what Joe is finding out. Robbie, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, I know of actually two studies that were done by the state of Massachusetts Health Department. I think it was in the 1980s around the Plymouth nuclear power plant. And they found a significant increase in leukemias, in particular childhood leukemias, uh, within, uh, I think, a five-mile radius of the... Um, Plymouth nuclear power plant in Massachusetts on Cape Cod Bay. And then there was another study done in Germany that also found the same thing, that there was a significant increase in leukemias within a five to 10 mile radius of um, nuclear power plants. With dozens of studies. I mean, that kick study that you're talking about, Robbie, in Germany, you know, sort of kickstarted this whole thing in a way, although the Plymouth one was earlier. Um, and so that's been replicated and there's been a meta-analysis done actually by Dr. Ian Fairley in the UK to sort of have a look at all these studies. Because one of the things that, of course, they tried to do was say, well, it's just statistically impossible. The amount of radiation that's routinely released by these nuclear power plants could not cause these spikes in, in childhood leukemia the closer these children live to the plant. 
But one of the theories also is, and this is doc, one of Dr. Fairley's hypotheses, is that you know when nuclear power plants shut down for refueling, there is a burst of radioactivity that's released, a, a much higher uh, dose than just day to day. And it's possible that when these bursts happen, that's what triggers these leukemias. But it's consistent across, I think there's 60 plus studies now around the world. So it's consistent and children and women and pregnant women are much more vulnerable. And so, you know, we feel like, you know, women should know, especially women who plan to or having children, you should not live within five miles of an operating nuclear power plant. And you certainly should not have an elementary school across the road from Vermont Yankee. Recent Supreme Court rulings over sensitive issues like abortion have pushed for more state autonomy over these issues. The documentary talked about how Vermont was the only state to issue state licenses for nuclear operations. What do you think about discussions around increased states' autonomy, and how can the climate agenda benefit from it? Robbie, would you want to jump in on this? Well, you know, Vermont was in this very unique situation um, where they did have a voice. And the way the system is set up is that the nuclear, the federal government has sole jurisdiction over the questions and issues of nuclear safety. However, states have regulation over economics and environmental uh, issues and, and reliability. And those were the sort of the laser focused issues that Vermont could have a toehold into having some authority. And according to uh, people like Arnie Gunderson, um, he says that all states theoretically have that regulation over nuclear power, but they're just not exercising it. So then it would be the question of the citizens of each state to really mobilize themselves, organize, to put pressure on their state legislatures to have more of a voice. Now, as more nuclear power plants are shutting down, that's not the end of the story. Yes, there's no more new nuclear waste being made, but as Tony just pointed out, the, the high levels of nuclear waste that are dangerous for 250,000 years, and Tony <laughs> talks about this quite uh, vociferously in the film, 250,000 years, it's ridiculous. Citizens should get involved in in the decommissioning of the nuclear power plants because it's really all about what happens to this waste. And this waste, there are, there are now proposals um, to create what are called interim waste storage sites in New Mexico and Texas in particular, nearby indigenous communities and Latino communities. So it's it's also an issue of, uh, of that affects people of color. And so alliances can be made between environmental activists, communities of color, indigenous communities, and you know, just other local communities to raise a voice about what happens to this waste because it's gonna affect us all. And if they, um, there's proposals afoot to, to transport this waste across the country to Texas and New Mexico. And that would create what are called mobile Chernobyls. In other words, the nuclear waste could have an, an accident on its way on rail lines and highways that could affect communities and cities and all across the, the country. So people really need to wake up that the nuclear issue 
is here to stay and that we only ignore it at our peril. We were discussing Power Struggle by Robbie Lepser, a film on the citizen activism it took to shut down the aging, dangerous Vermont Yankee nuclear power station. The panelists were filmmaker Robbie Lepser, Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, former Vermont state legislator Tony Klein, and myself. Many thanks to the producing efforts of the Museum of Political Corruption, spearheaded by Veronica Medina Metzner and Bruce Broder. Links to Power Struggle and the Museum of Political Corruption will be found on NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 599. And if you'd like to help Nuclear Hot Seat continue to build our online presence and the echo chamber for thoughts that are against nuclear, please go to NuclearHotSeat.com and subscribe to the podcast. Fill out the yellow opt-in box with your first name and email address. And don't be shy about sharing these links and information with your friends, family, schools, any place you can think of where people deserve to be awakened and informed about what's really going on in the nuclear industry and how it impacts them. And a reminder that next week's show will be Nuclear Hot Seat number 600. We'll have highlights from the first 11 and a half years of the show and a few glimpses of where we've been preparing to go, as well as our recently granted nonprofit status. Lots of reasons to celebrate, and we hope you'll be here with us to do so. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 13, 2022. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. Just mention the program and our website. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, not only what you don't know can hurt you, chances are it already has. There you have it. You have just received your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.